It's Tuesday, June 28th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, NASA's Artemis mission returning us to the moon has officially begun. Sort of. Here is everything you need to know about today's first step towards establishing a base in lunar orbit. Plus, why do so many of us love logging the books we read and the movies we watch on tracking apps? And at what cost? Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Early this morning in New Zealand, a small rocket launched into space, humbly kicking off the much-hyped NASA Artemis mission that plans to return humans to the moon by 2025. The Electron rocket from private company Rocket Lab is the smallest rocket to ever set sail for the moon, and the probe on top that will perform the key work here is no bigger than a microwave. Called the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System, Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, or Capstone, the spacecraft is on a four-month-long journey to a unique orbit around the moon, one which NASA hopes will one day serve as the home orbit for a permanent moon base. The base, to be called Gateway, will be something like the International Space Station, orbiting around the moon and serving as a midway point between it and the Earth. There, astronauts will have somewhere to dock on their way to the moon or or stay in communication with fellow crew members on the lunar surface. But NASA has never before sent any spacecraft to this particular lunar orbit, and so, before spending massive amounts of time and money on the Gateway Outpost, they sent up the tiny capstone CubeSat to explore the orbit. Quoting The Verge, This distinctive orbit is called Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit, or NRHO for short. It's a special seven-day path that the spacecraft can take around the moon, bringing vehicles relatively close to the lunar surface for one day before they swing out far from the moon for the other six. When astronauts went to the moon during Apollo, their path to the moon was a more or less straight shot on a massive rocket called the Saturn V. Once they arrived, they eventually put themselves into a relatively circular orbit around the moon, one that brought them within 62 miles of the surface. That way they could get down to the ground and back into lunar orbit relatively quickly. This approach got them to the moon fast, but required a lot of resources. With Artemis, NASA wants to try some new approaches to lunar exploration. By parking the gateway in NRHO, the future lunar space station will come within 1,000 miles of the south pole of the moon and swing out to 43,500 miles from the other pole each week. That close pass is a much larger distance than the Apollo astronauts had to cover to reach the ground, but NRHO provides other important benefits. Spacecraft in NRHO have a constant line of sight with Earth, allowing for continuous communication. That's something the Apollo astronauts didn't have. When they were in lunar orbit, they passed on the far side of the moon, blocking their signals with Earth for nearly an hour during each lap. End quote. And staying in NRHO won't require nearly as much fuel as the standard circular orbit around the moon because the elongated path is affected by the gravitational poles of the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon, otherwise known as a three-body orbit. This creates a bit more stability in the path, which requires less fuel, both to stay on track and to travel down to the lunar surface. However, striking the balance is a delicate operation, so Capstone's job in the coming months will 
will be to ascertain the exact path at which that balance between the tugs of each gravitational pull is maintained. Capstone's pathfinding mission is more roundabout than the path will be for future astronauts in the Artemis program. While they'll travel to the moon directly in a few days, like their Apollo forebears, Capstone is taking a four-month-long route called a BLT. That's a ballistic lunar transfer, not a bacon lettuce tomato. The BLT takes it on spiral loops farther and farther out until it reaches NRHO. It'll take a long time, but use far less fuel, which is good because the microwave-sized capstone can't really carry much fuel. Quoting Wired, CubeSats pack a lot into tiny spaces, typically at a lower cost than larger satellites. The cube refers to a single standard unit, which is about 4 inches on a side. Many CubeSats have a 3U format, with a trio joined to form a configuration about the size of a loaf of bread. Capstone is a 12U spacecraft, or four of those combined. Everything's designed to fit in that compact box, including a lithium-ion battery and the avionics system, with the electronics and microcontrollers in charge of propulsion, navigation, and data handling. Horizontal solar panels extend from both sides of the box like wings. While plenty of spacecraft have orbited the moon, Capstone's technology demonstrations will make it unique. In particular, it includes a positioning system that makes it possible for NASA and its commercial partners to determine the precise location of the spacecraft while it's in lunar orbit. On Earth, people take for granted that GPS provides that information, says Bradley Cheatham, CEO of Advanced Space and principal investigator of Capstone at a virtual press conference in May. But GPS doesn't extend to upper Earth orbits, let alone the moon. Beyond Earth orbit, researchers still rely on ground-based systems to track spacecraft through the Deep Space Network, an international system of giant antennas managed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Instead, Capstone will provide a spacecraft to space spacecraft navigation system, taking advantage of the lunar reconnaissance orbiter that's already there. The pair will communicate with each other and measure the distance between them and each of their positions, independent of ground systems, Cheatham said." End quote. Measurements and data are the name of the game with this mission. Tons of recon to help NASA determine what they need for the Gateway outpost. As Gateway's mission design lead Diane Davis told Wired, quote, "...it's kind of rare in our field of spacecraft trajectory design to actually get to send a physical experiment up into space before we do the real thing. I'm super excited to see how it performs out there. End quote. Now, even though Artemis 1, an uncrewed test flight around the moon and the inaugural journeys of both the SLS and the Orion spacecraft, won't happen until August at the very earliest, this morning's capstone launch is being considered by some to be the start of the Artemis program. And that is pretty dang exciting. Are you one of those people who tracks what you read on Goodreads or what you watch on Letterboxd? Maybe you have an activity tracker or use a meal tracker. Despite not being every person's cup of tea, data trackers have become huge markets and run-of-the-mill aspects of everyday life over the last several years. But why do we, generally, we, like them so much? And do the apps that track things like what movies we watch or books we read perhaps ruin the experience of simply enjoying art? 
Rachel Segui recently dug into this over at The Guardian and says that she, like myself and many people I think, first started logging her cultural intake in an attempt to organize the constant deluge of content we're exposed to every day. I definitely get this. My to-be-read list on Goodreads may be completely out of control and I may pretty rarely actually check it, but I feel a little bit better knowing that when I skim a review of a book that sounds intriguing, there's a tangible action I can take to bookmark it for future reference rather than risk forgetting about it forever, as I do so much of what comes across my screens every day. But many of the sites and apps that allow you to conveniently organize content you'd like to consume or have consumed have also leaned into gamification and social elements, making the act of logging even more enjoyable in some ways and maybe even working as more of a motivating factor than reading or watching or listening to the actual piece of media to begin with. Dr. Karen Shackelford, editor of the journal Psychology of Popular Media, told The Guardian that it's similar to the positive feedback signals people get from playing video games, saying, quote, It's kind of amazing what little amount of reward will motivate people. It's dopamine in our brain, and it's like a pursuit chemical, so it keeps you playing. End quote. Now, apart from the debate over whether your motivation should be wanting to tick a box to feel a dopamine-fueled sense of accomplishment or, you know, just enjoying the art, there are other downsides to the gamification and data logging of some of these apps. One, like I hinted at with my bloated TBR list, is that it can make us feel even more pressured to read or watch the things we haven't yet. You know, as if you didn't already feel like you had a laundry list of TV shows to catch up on because no one watches shows at the same time anymore, so any conversation with a person turns into hearing about another show you think you'd like or feel obligated to watch. When you keep track of shows with an app, you're faced with an actual number staring back at you of the number of shows you're intending to watch that is usually exponentially larger than the number of shows you actually have watched. None of us need additional pressure and stress in our lives, but the pressure on those apps compounds even more when your profile is made public, as they all encourage you to do. Quoting The Guardian, Professor Deborah Lupton, an expert on the self-tracking phenomenon and author of The Quantified Self, explains, We've got used to this idea that it's good to share our habits online and that it's nice to get feedback, but there could be an adverse effect if it becomes all about competition. I think that probably is a way of diminishing the pleasure. And continuing from The Guardian, if your account on any of these platforms is public, there might even be performative pressure to curate your track record at the expense of honesty. Say, logging the power of the dog, but omitting Space Jam A New Legacy. End quote. And I have definitely felt that pressure on Goodreads, the only platform I publicly display what I'm consuming. There have been times I've waited to mark a book as currently reading until I get far enough into it that I think I will actually finish it, lest it fester away forever on my currently reading list with people judging how long it's taken me to finish it. Or there are times I've read arcs of upcoming books that aren't on Goodreads yet, and I've gotten frustrated that I can't add them to my tally for my annual reading goal. 
a goal I tend to think way too much about other people's judgments of. And of course, I've read books that are too embarrassing or controversial to publicly admit that I've read or would want to mark as to read. For all of those reasons, and a desire to de-invest from certain corporations, I've been working on pivoting my book tracking to a private database that I built in Notion. And now I track all sorts of things privately in Notion. Movies and TV shows I've watched and want to watch, albums and podcasts I've listened to, even more standout articles that I've read, and beers that I've drunk. I've always been a bit of a data-tracking nerd. I like seeing patterns emerge over time when I look back. I like having a reference point when I think, oh, what was the name of that movie I watched years ago? Having notes that I can add with favorite quotes or personal takeaways, which help me actually remember what I read or watched. Or being able to pull up a list of shows and movies that I want to see when I'm trying to decide what to watch at the end of the day, instead of scrolling through recommendations within each app. It helps keep me organized and make sense of the media that I'm engaging with in this hysterically oversaturated digital world. And when I track it privately, just for myself, I can use it in those functional and reflective ways without worrying about the judgments of others. Now, I know not everyone has a desire to track their consumption, and especially to spend so much time doing so manually when all these apps out there make it so easy and arguably more fun. And while I don't have any desire for the social element of tracking, I do think that the reports that some of these apps generate can be pretty interesting, and something that my rudimentary Notion databases can't achieve. Interesting as reports like Spotify Wrapped may be, however, they're rarely accurate, especially not for non-power users. You know, Spotify Wrapped might say that your favorite genre is 90s alt-rock, but it doesn't know that you listen to pop standards on vinyl, Beyonce on Tidal, and a whole bunch of early aughts indie rock on your old iTunes library. Or in another example that is absolutely not about me, maybe Spotify thinks that your favorite song of the year was Europe's The Final Countdown, but really you just have to play it every single week as part of a bit when you host trivia. The point is, as striking as the data visualizations can often be, and as ready-made as they are for publicly sharing, they're not always accurate despite the disturbing amount of information they actually have about us. And that, in a way, is how all these media trackers themselves, whether it's the platforms we're using to consume the content on or a third party that we've synced to or manually report to, represent the unholy alliance between the arts and big tech. Quoting again, Lupton believes that the expansion of tracking from the health sphere to our cultural intake was inevitable, a result of our sharing economy coming together with the migration of the arts to streaming platforms that have monitoring baked into their technologies, end quote. If we fear a scenario in which our consumption of art is too tied to gamification and data tracking, that ship has already sailed. Like so much else in tech, many of these sites fail to account for the complexity and nuances of individual human beings, and of the lives we lead outside of their apps. You know, personally, I will always be a fan of tracking media I'd like to consume and have consumed. I started tracking all the documentaries I watched in a humble Excel spreadsheet nearly 10 years ago, and had countless handwritten to-read book lists growing up. But Sigley, writing in The Guardian, may be right to question the popularity of these data tracking apps specifically and how they're changing many people's approach to the consumption of art. I mean, even just calling it consumption instead of 
I don't know, enjoyment? As she writes, quote, The culture we choose to consume is more than just a sideshow. It's an impression of our lives, our emotional or mental states reflected in how we choose to spend our leisure time. In that sense, there is no winning however much tracking apps might push us towards that mindset. It's one thing to hit your goals on your exercise app, but culture is not something that can be completed. There's no payoff with fireworks dancing across my screen as an app tells me, congratulations, you have watched all the films. Instead, I need to start thinking of my tracking habit as a companion rather than a driving force, a loose guide to alleviate the tyranny of choice a convenient memory jogger, and a journal that I can dip in and out of. Because however meticulously we collect the data on ourselves, ticking a box will never be representative of the subjective, intuitive, unpredictable, and intangible ways in which we respond to culture. And that is where the real value lies. End quote. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.